Good morning, everyone. Uh, and I'd like to warmly welcome you to our fourth Talk BD event. I'm Dr. Emma Morton, and uh, this session today will be focused on strategies to manage substance use during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, I'm very pleased to be hosting today on behalf of Crest BD, and we're also very fortunate to have with us Victoria Maxwell and our guests from Spectrum over in the UK, Dr. Stephen Jones. So whether you're joining us from Canada, the UK or beyond, welcome. I'll just quickly introduce myself first. Uh, despite my Australian accent, I'm in fact joining you from mainland Vancouver. I'm a postdoctoral fellow with the University of British Columbia studying digital health tools and quality of life for people with mood disorders. Um, and I've been with the Crest BD team since 2015. Um, my hobbies are uh, drawing and crafting, but since moving to Vancouver, actually six months ago now, I've been trying to get out more and enjoy the beautiful green spaces that you have on offer. And I'll just hand it over to Dr. Stephen Jones to introduce himself. Great. Thanks, Emma. Um, hi, I'm Steve Jones. I'm a professor of clinical psychology. Um, at Lancaster University and co-director of the Spectrum Centre that focuses on supporting people with bipolar. Um, in terms of where we're based, we're located in the northwest of England. Um, and in terms of hobbies, hmm, I think I need to admit to playing guitar rather badly. <laughs> okay. I think we might be able to start a Chris Beattie band. There's a couple of people with hidden musical talents. <laughs> Victoria? Uh, I'm Victoria Maxwell and I'm a peer researcher with Crest BD. Uh, I've been with Crest from its inception, I guess probably at least seven years ago. Uh, and then my full-time job is as a mental health speaker and a performer and a mental health coach. And I live with bipolar disorder and anxiety uh, with psychotic features and uh, living fairly well, but still hitting those bumps when those bumps come. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, my hobbies, I'd say running is partially a hobby, but also a wellness tool. Mm -hmm. And I am an avid reader, I'm an avid slow reader. And I'm actually an avid slow runner too. So <laughs> it's a bit of both. And if you do hear a, a bark in the background, that's my dog, Pedro, who I go running with, but just to let you know who it is or what mm -hmm. it is. Um, yes, uh, my dog promises he'll be very quiet also, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, if you haven't been joining us for the previous sessions, or even if you have, uh, I just want to um, say what this series is about. This is a special initiative that CRESPD has put in place to support our community mm -hmm. in what has been a very challenging time for many people. Um, CRESPD is a Canadian research network dedicated to advancing the study of quality of life, digital health tools, self-management and um, stigma and creativity for people with bipolar disorder. Um, but we know that during this time of COVID-19, these kinds of challenges are experienced by people with similar mental health conditions. Um, we also have carers and healthcare providers who are interested in ways that they can provide support. So, um, whatever brings you to this event, uh, you're all warmly welcome. Um, our research approach is to make sure that we partner hand in hand with people with bipolar disorder to ensure that the research that we do is relevant to things that are important in your lives. 
and we also try to make sure that we share the results of that research um, to people who can benefit most from those findings. Um, and we have a number of partner organizations around the world like Spectrum who also share that with us. Um, I'll briefly run through a few housekeeping points. We have people today joining us via Zoom or the Facebook live stream. Uh, and we're trying to take questions during this event. We've taken a few beforehand via the Pressbeady website. Um, but if something pops to mind that you'd like to ask the team today, you can ask that via the Zoom Q&A um, box. Or if you're on Facebook, you can post on the live stream and uh, Laura, uh, who has already introduced herself in the chat, will be taking those questions. And, um, I'll relay those to the presenters later. And we'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, so with those housekeeping notes done, I think I'll pass it over to Stephen. Great, okay. <laughs> Thanks for that, Emma. So I think um, for this uh, initial sort of brief presentation, the first thing I wanted to highlight was obviously we're living, all of us, in uncertain times and that all of us are experiencing sort of global challenges with issues around disrupted routine, uncertainty, isolation and boredom. And I think for many people, the initial onset of the pandemic was linked to strong feelings of panic and fear. And it's important to recognize that this is an ongoing situation for quite a lot of people. So we are in these uncertain times, definitely. And in terms of substance use, I think before we talk about substance use in relation to bipolar, it's worth considering substance use in the general population. So the first thing to acknowledge is that substance use is common. So if we think about, for instance, the UK, US and Canada, Around 80% of people use alcohol and more than half do that regularly. If we think about cannabis, around 15% of people use that um, and 5 to 10% regularly, something like that, uh, with lower rates of some of the other substances. So in the general population, using alcohol is common. If you think about substances as a whole, most people in the general population have used something. And substance use in general, in moderation, can be fine. And I think that, you know, this sort of UK tradition of meeting at a pub at the end of the working week for a few drinks and a chat with friends is fine. And you can see the sort of social element, people trying to replicate that with things like virtual pubs on Zoom and that sort of thing. So I guess one of the questions is, when does it become a problem? And I think really substance use becomes an issue when it becomes habitual and when it becomes essentially the go-to solution for a uh, wide range of day-to-day -day problems. And a number of things can sort of trigger that as a potential difficulty. And certainly major life crises and major external crises can uh, actually be one of the issues which can contribute to that. So the current pandemic would definitely qualify as such a crisis. And if we look back at previous um, difficulties, for instance, the uh, Hurricane Katrina would be a good example. There's plenty of research around showing increases in alcohol and substance use both during and after the immediate effects of uh, Katrina had uh, passed away. So why do people use substances? I think generally people use substances for lots of reasons, but they boil down to often being changing how you feel. And doing that in moderation, again, is absolutely fine. But when it's used in a problematic and habitual way, that can cause difficulties. 
aside from the physical health difficulties, they it can also be associated with worsening of the feelings that people might have been trying to address in the first place. And the, the reason people can sort of fall into that pattern is perfectly understandable. So many substances have short-term immediate effects that seem to address a, an unpleasant mood, for instance, but they then have delayed effects over repeated use that can not only worsen that problem, but they also they can reduce access to more positive approaches because uh, you can become fixed on using that particular solution. And in terms of bipolar disorder, I think there are particular challenges that people with bipolar experience. So living with bipolar includes often living with instability, with symptoms of depression or mania, with symptoms of anxiety or other associated difficulties. And also people with bipolar often have a stronger drive towards reward and higher levels than the general population sometimes of impulsiveness, which means um, resisting issues around substances can be more of a challenge potentially. And in terms of substances used, alcohol is again the most common substance used by people with bipolar, just like the general population. Cannabis is the second most widely used substance. So the pattern is very much similar um, across uh, the general population and the subset of people within that who have bipolar. About 50 to 60% of people have um, report having had a problem with substances um, over their lifetime. And about a third of people with bipolar report that that has been a problem in the last year. And the sorts of problems people identify around um, substance use can be difficulties with day-to-day -day functioning, um, treatment outcomes not being as good, and additional difficulties with mood. And I think it's possibly worth mentioning that another issue is that sometimes those issues can be apparent even with um, relatively moderate use. So thinking about these issues um, is a worthwhile endeavour, I think, for people. Um, and in terms of why people use substances um, in, in their bipolar, that many of the reasons are very similar to what we find in the general population. So people use substances to address distressing feelings or manage mood, to feel calm, to relax, to help sleep, and to, for some people, just to feel good. Yes, Stephen, I, I was just going to pop in yeah. here um, from my own experience. Um, and I, I think also when we think of substances, um, typically we think of sort of alcohol and uh, drugs, a variety of drugs. And for me, it was uh, alcohol and food, though. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it's like you said, I mean, granted, uh, food in moderation is always good, <laughs> but we can't, like, we, can't, we can't become abstinent from food, which mm -hmm. is one of the difficulties. But what I, I found also with, um, uh, with alcohol in terms of, of the reasons that it almost seems like it's just slightly more exaggerated for people with bipolar disorder that um, because I was also used to the highs and if I was coming out of a low, it was a way for me to replicate artificially that kind of high with a lot more consequences. Um, and I think that impulsivity as well um, influenced uh, my decision-making around um, my alcohol use. Um, and so I, and I found as I, when I was, before I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, um, 
you know, I, my alcohol use was um, fairly, um, I would say quite, it was moderate, but it would go into sort of heavy use at times. And that was also partially my age. You know, there, there's sort of no binge drinking when you're in your 20s. Um, but as I've aged and as uh, what I'm noticing is that my sensitivity to alcohol has increased. So uh, before I would be able to even maybe five years ago, and I'm 53 now, but five years ago, I could, I could have a drink with dinner, you know, four times a week, um, and it wouldn't bother me. And now I'm really noticing that it, um, it, it, uh, my, my system is much more sensitive to it. So I have to uh, really find um, other ways to enjoy dinner with, you know, without alcohol, which is obviously what a lot of people do who don't drink at all. So um, it's been a transition for me. And um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to mention those two things is that food can also be a substance because I was definitely using that as a way to alter how I felt, particularly with anxiety and depression and with uh, alcohol, noticing that the effects of uh, alcohol really started, the consequences of alcohol were more severe as I've uh, aged with bipolar disorder. That's great, Victoria, thank you. And that, that really helpfully illustrates that, that, that issue of sort of patterns, including relatively moderate use at different stages can have different effects. Yeah, um, and, and it's interesting because I uh, never had been um, drinking alcoholically um, and I remember somebody asking, you know, well, how do you know when it's a problem? And because there's kids, students, young people who are binge drinking uh, or drinking a lot. And I think it's like you said, it's when it's habitual and where it really interferes with functioning. Um, but ideally you wanna notice it even before it starts to interfere with functioning uh, because at that time, then it's usually already quite an ingrained uh, issue. And it's easier to address if you address it earlier. Perfect. So thank you for that, Victoria. And that so in terms of thinking about the issue of, of what what people might do about substance use, then I think there's, there's a couple of elements to that. One is obviously for people who have an established problem, then maintaining engagement with current treatment and use and doing that through the remote mechanisms that have been put in place and um, certainly in the UK and I understand internationally is sort of priority one but as Victoria was saying identifying early issues of substance use potentially becoming problematic recognition is is really key and I think going alongside that is self-compassion around that recognition so if, if you're feeling that it might be problematic, being very judgmental of oneself around that is very likely to be counterproductive. Whereas actually identifying and accepting that this may be an issue and the earlier the better in line with what Victoria was saying makes it easier to think of ways of addressing the sorts of issues you might be having. Yeah, and, and Stephen, I, I wanted to also mention that idea of because if I, for people I know that um, use substances or myself when I was using them, particularly with food, uh, that self-compassion was really helpful because I started to recognize that it, it was really about self-soothing. And mm -hmm. now that there's more um, information and uh, therapeutic sort of uh, approach with using sort of a tra uh, trauma-informed approach, recognizing that it can be a lot about 
past traumas as well as, <clears throat> excuse me, bipolar disorder and attachment uh, styles and things. So I think um, understanding that, you know, it's, it's sort of like uh, the best solution that what a person can find at the time with the resources that they have. And, uh, and so it, I think it goes a long way, both for family members to have some understanding and some compassion, and also for that individual, because there's so much, there can be so much shame around the, uh, the sort of whole concept of substance use. And I think that's why ideally we're saying substance use as opposed to uh, substance abuse. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I think that leads on to this issue of looking at, in a sense, so in using substances and in identifying it might be uh, developing as a problem, what sort of problems or, or feelings or memories are you trying to address? And in identifying those, as Victoria was saying, with compassion for self, or if it's a relative, compassion for the relative, <laughs> the, the other issue is how you then search for alternative positive ways to address that. And I think, you know, a key thing there is that for most people, you know, we need to reach out. We need to access support from the people around us, even though some of that support is more remote than it would normally be. And um, also accessing the appropriate sort of remote resources, both in terms of clinical services, but also the kind of information, for instance, that Crest provides. So Crest has developed some great resources on uncertainty and anxiety and family issues, which are all freely available. And I think Emma's going to walk us through some additional um, substance use specific information um, for people at the end of the Q&A. So I think it's not trying to do everything alone is really key. Yeah, and I, and I found that particularly true. Um, for a number of years, I belonged to Overeaters Anonymous. Um, and just the, and I think it's just like knowing that you're not alone with uh, bipolar disorder or depression and having sort of a shorthanded language so that people, you know, you know exactly what it means to white knuckle it when you're really wanting to like, you know, binge or something or where you're in the depths of darkness and people understand that it's something that you can't just think your way out of. Um, I think that that peer support is uh, really essential as well as the professional help that maybe gives some psychoeducation and some tools. Um, and that, that's been sort of my path as well as the medication that allows um, uh, sort of some stability. And what I, what I found really interesting was that when I was um, struggling with particularly for uh, both, I guess both food and alcohol, um, it wasn't until my bipolar disorder was actually identified that allowed me to um, get the right tools because I was sort of looking in the wrong direction. I was trying to sort of control this, this thing, this behavior that I was doing. And it wasn't until, like you said, Stephen, that I started to actually um, find out that there was this whole other condition that was driving those behaviors as well as some other issues, some personal issues and things. So when those were starting to be addressed, the um, be, sort of the substance use behavior started to decrease almost not completely on their own, but uh, with a lot less effort. That's really helpful. Yes, that, that sort of key link between the bipolar experiences and some of the other challenges and yeah. what you need to change to change what is, is really key, I think. So 
that's really helpful. And I think another aspect of this is um, not just focusing on what you're wanting to not do, if that makes sense. So it can be really easy to get locked into, you know, not get engaging in problem eating or not you know, using alcohol problematically. But I think it's at least as important, probably more so in some ways, to think what does actually fire your interest, what does matter to you, and what's of value, and to to really try and focus your routines around including those sorts of things that actually matter. You know, what whatever it is, whether it's nature, arts, supporting others. And finding ways of actually engaging with that alongside doing these sensible things to sort of manage your substance use. And even though we are, you know, in most countries, socially distancing and in lockdown, I think that, you know, there has been an explosion of sort of digital resources that make a lot of these things much more possible remotely than they ever used to be. Yeah. And also, you know, just standard sensible things like using exercise as a distraction as well as a mood boost and having a you know having a side effect of helping keep yourself fitter and just sort of building those things into a general routine yeah and i and the two things that come to mind when you say that is that um when particularly when i was sort of using these substances um oftentimes my mood wasn't that stable so to find something that i really enjoyed or valued, it was sort of a distant memory. So it really was able to use it as a distraction until I started to actually, feel, it was sort of like the more that I engaged in it, slowly, slowly did that joy and that sense of value come back. Um, so for me, it might've been, you know, uh, walking with friends and I would still, you know, come back home and feel completely depressed, <laughs> but eventually slowly, I, you know, I, the more I was willing to socially connect, the more that I was able to distract myself from um, wanting to, you know, do whatever problematic substance use behaviors. And uh, it, it sort of, sort of merged, or I was able to merge onto a different route. And, um, and that became really helpful. And I think also, when I did start to feel better, and I was doing things that I valued, um, it mimicked some of the good feelings that I had that I missed when I would have hypomania or mania um, and it would buoy me up uh, from the depression or the anxiety and it gave me a, and, and it gave me a sense sort of a, of mastery or of uh, sort of self-efficacy when I was doing that so for me it was creative writing a lot um, and it still is so um, I think those are really important points for people and those are sort of practical things that you can do even though in these strange times, you know, things that you might be able to do on your own or let's say virtually with other people or, or webinars like this. And I, thank you for that. I, I think that really highlights very well this issue of um, that these things take time as well, that that's doing, doing the right thing doesn't just solve a, a challenge overnight. And so this issue of <laughs> compassion in terms of trying failing sometimes, adapting what you're doing, you know, then making more progress. And gradually, as you were saying, the sort of value of doing that becomes more apparent over time, I think. Yeah, that's, that was, that's been my experience for sure. And I think just finally, I mean, alongside all of that, if, if in a sense we're using substances to address feelings, uncertainty and worry about the current situation is, is likely to be part of that. And I think 
you know, just consciously noticing that this is a temporary situation, consciously noticing a few good things each day can also just be a useful small element in, as Victoria, you were saying, in terms of just helping you mood, you know, if it's if it's beginning to feel rather low, just an another small thing to help you mood, just sort of stay within you, um, help usual bounds. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that was recently suggested to me because I was going through quite a, a, a really a low period, actually. And, um, and it was my therapist that said, and just cherish those small moments when you do feel that kind of, it might not even be close to joy, but it might be a reprieve from um, the really uncomfortable feelings. And, and that was something that really helped me sort of put things in perspective and also made me feel like, oh, okay, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm still alive. I'm still, this is, this is okay. Uh, it, I'm gonna keep moving forward towards that North Star. It's just slow going. And, and it, it, it helped because it gave me also almost like a treasure hunt to do. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and it gave me a different focus other than other things. And I think that can help also with substance use if you're, like you said, trying, instead of trying not to do something, following what um, you want to do. And, and creating that and moving towards that. Yes, I think that's that's really helpful. And I think those are the sort of key things I wanted to flag up. So is there anything further you wanted to? Um... No, I think maybe some questions perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Thank you both for sharing those uh, that information and those tips. And I'm, I'm really struck by, once again, how important it is for us to maintain self-compassion and creatively find ways to to socially connect during this time uh, how important that's been across all of the different topics we've brought up whether that's anxiety or substance use um, so I'll turn thank you everyone who has submitted a question um, we're still taking them via Facebook and via um, the Zoom Q&A um, so I'll do this one to start off um, uh, this person says, while I work in mental health and have bipolar type 1, I'm finding that I'm beginning to fall back into drinking every day ever since the COVID-19 pandemic began to deal with stress. I'm doing the opposite to what I'm telling people facing their mental illness. I feel somewhat guilty. Can you please offer a few tips what I should do and how I can disengage from thinking virtually every waking hour about my own illness? Thank you. Okay, shall I... Uh... Shall I dive in? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that question. Uh, I mean, I think I think we've talked a lot about compassion, and I think this is a great question for illustrating that. So, from what you're saying, this this person is actually working in mental health services and living along living with bipolar themselves, and uh, is worried about their sort of alcohol use becoming sort of a daily feature. And I think um, being aware of um, that problem is actually the starting point. So I think, you know, the first thing is to, to congratulate that person on identifying that this might be a developing issue. And then um, if, this, if they're in mental health already, it might actually be very helpful to think if this was one of your clients, what would you actually be advising them to do? Because it sounds as though from the question, the person might be being quite self-critical and thinking about why am I doing this? I'm in mental health. I should be able to help myself because I can help other people. <laughs> but you 
know, speaking as a therapist, if we have problems, we're generally not brilliant at sorting them out on our own. We need support just like everyone else. So I think, you know, actually being uh, confident to think it's okay as a therapist or a clinician to reach out for help as well. And that the online resources we're talking about can be things that are really useful in that context as well. Yeah, and I, I don't have a lot to add to that, except I think it does have a lot to do with um, self-compassion and that awareness. Um, and I mean, I guess if you're looking at sort of a practical tip is um, when you notice that you're wanting to have, you know, maybe one more drink than you'd like to, being able to just sit with that discomfort um, and uh, I, I read this one that it's um, uncomfortable, but acceptable. So that feeling that you might have, and, uh, and even if those guilty feelings come up, being able to um, just notice them as they happen. And then, you know, if you have that drink, you have that drink. Um, but sometimes I find that compassion just before the urge to do a behavior that you might not want gives enough wiggle room to either make a different choice or for other feelings to come up that might be propelling that behavior. And um, so it, it, and allowing yourself to not have any expectations of how your behavior might change. Um, and I think that's it. And the other thing sometimes is like with um, the 12 step group that some reasons why it's successful is because there's peers and so being able to reach out to a trusted person um, and just you know if you're wanting to make a commitment around um, sort of finding a buddy that you feel like you can talk to and not necessarily have you change what you're doing but just really care for you and accept you as you are um, mm. with what you're doing and somehow sometimes uh, things start to shift um, on their own that way. Thank you. That's a really good tip, particularly if you are finding it difficult to be compassionate to yourself, to find somebody you trust in your life who can, who can yeah. be that compassionate yeah. for you. Sure. Um, and spinning off what you said about um, uh, finding peers, whether it's virtually or reconnecting with people who you used to meet up with online, we had a couple of questions come up about these kind of online alternatives. Um, this person says, I have never attended support group meetings until these Zoom meetings started to pop up with the virus. I like these meetings online and I feel it works better for me than in-person meetings. I'm worried that these will go away after the virus is over. What should I do? Um, I, I think that's a really good point. I, I think um, there's, uh, my sense is that there's been a, a significant change in perception about uh, remote support for people as a result of the pandemic. So certainly talking about in the UK, during, uh, prior to the pandemic, there was quite a lot of resistance to uh, live video um, delivery of therapy and that sort of thing. It was seen as quite radical. Um, and uh, my sense is talking to people in the uh, National Health Service over here, that's just completely changed. So there is the trusts local to us are all delivering things by telephone, or they're delivering things by um, Zoom and Skype. 
and they're not planning to radically alter that, um, you know, during, uh, as we re-engage. I mean, there will be more face-to-face -face things, but that once people have realized that they can actually deliver support effectively in those ways, I think you can't unknow that. So I think there will be more balance in how people are supported, you know, once this is over. But um, certainly all the things I'm hearing is suggesting that the support for online services is something which is actually a change in terms of how we're all seeing care, rather than just a temporary fix for this current crisis. I don't know what you think, Victoria. Yeah, and I, I know, uh, and I believe this was even sort of the pre-COVID uh, time, uh, that the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance has, uh, it's an American um, organization, uh, had on, or has online support groups. And if you go there, um, you can find where they are and what time they are. And then also it's linked to a larger, uh, a larger uh, website. And I think, I think it's called support, support people or support center.ca. I can't remember what it is, um, but if you go to uh, depression bipolar or DBSA um, Alliance, uh, you can find out where those online groups are and it'll, it'll also direct you to that larger one. And then they have actually all uh, multiple, uh, multiple topics. So you can find one specifically for substance use uh, as well as anxiety or bipolar disorder and things like that. So I think that's an ongoing one um, that even happened before COVID. That's really helpful. And just to give a UK flavor to that, uh, Bipolar UK have similar sort of well-established e-forums and that sort of thing for supporting people remotely. And those do predate as well. So I think like you were saying, they're, they're not things that are just being put up hastily and will be withdrawn. They're things that are there for the long term, I think. And, and one of the other things too, is I would say um, for the groups that you belong to or that you're attending, really give the feedback that you want these to continue. Because if there's one person that gives that feedback, people know that there's at least 10 other people that feel the mm -hmm. same way. Um, and that's the way people start to innovate. So, yeah. Mm, great point. It is reassuring to hear that a lot of these, you know, people are trying new and different things. This uh, situation is forcing us all to be a little bit creative in how we um, are social, whether that's, you know, contact with friends and family, as well as uh, these kinds of support network meetings. Um, and I, I would be surprised if that's not continuing in some way afterwards. Uh, and at the end of this session, we'll be sharing some uh, links to some online resources for that, where you can find uh, online support groups if you haven't tried one before. Uh, we have a question about the impact of the kind of change in routine that uh, isolation uh, has brought and how that's impacting on substance use. Um, this person says, since the pandemic, I'm finding it very hard not to use substances, specifically alcohol. Uh, I'm out of work and there is nothing to break up the day. I find that I'm very lonely and stressed. And uh, at least when I have a drink, I feel something different for a while. Now I keep waking up depressed and want to drink more to get out of that. Um, I feel like I'm spiraling, spiraling out of control. What can I do? Okay, so that, that sounds like a tough situation. And I think, again, it's, it's really to the person's credit that they're identifying the issue in the first place. 
And I think they're really, it sounds like they're highlighting one of the things we were talking about earlier about the, the sort of short and long-term effects of alcohol. Um, so it probably is the case that the quick hit of alcohol has an immediate or sh short-term effect that feels quite seductive. And also in the question, they're also identifying that actually that doesn't seem to be helping that much in the sense that they're then waking up with worse moods and finding it harder to get on with the day. And so, I mean, I think a lot of the things we've been talking about, about actually actively creating a routine for yourself is, is hard, but it's really important. And it's important, you know, it's not unique to bipolar, but it's, it can be particularly important to sort of think, okay, well, what are the markers in, in a day when we're in this different situation? How do we create you know, positive moments in the day? How do we connect with other people? How do we reach out and get the sort of support we were talking about? And, you know, how do we look after ourselves in constructive ways? And I think, you know, Victoria's description earlier about the, the, that, that, that the positive benefits of that take a little time, but they can grow over time. But uh, uh, Victoria can say that more eloquently than me, so I'll pass it. No, no, no. I, I, you said it really well, and I think uh, I can. Uh, I've, I, I've been there really recently. Not necessarily um, trying to stop uh, my or reducing my substance use, but just trying to create a routine. So I was in this very quite severe uh, low, uh, and it was more uh, severe than it had been for many, many years. And uh, the first thing I needed to do was create a routine, which <laughs> if you're really depressed is really hard to do. <laughs> mm. um, so I, I don't know if this person's connected to any health professionals or anything like that. If you're not, maybe even if you can um, do it on your own or with a buddy or something like that, um, even you know just texting somebody. But for me, a lot of it was giving myself a window of when I needed to get up. So ideally it would, let's say be, you know, if eight o'clock, you know, it wasn't going to be seven o'clock was too early, eight o'clock, maybe between eight and 9 a.m. was when I was going to get up um, and uh, did my best to do that. And then sort of the, the three things I knew I needed to do was it feels responsible. And then the other important thing was one thing that I remembered that I enjoyed doing. <laughs> and so it was reading a book and those, and it was just keeping it really minimal. And um, the, so, so, and the expectation, uh, or I guess the making it as easy to be successful at those things as possible um, and bringing as much self-compassion because the hardest part for me was actually getting up in the morning. Um, and uh, once I sort of got up, it was sort of like, a pebble rolling down the hill that I sort of, despite myself, wouldn't really go back to bed. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I'd go and I'd get my, you know, clothes on. Okay, da, da. Um, and and doing those things, and ideally, sort of time blocking them. Like, when do I want to have those done? Um, and uh, I put them in my a day timer. I needed to do that. And and if it wasn't working, then I I tried to sort of figure out, okay, what what would make it easier for me to get that to be that. Um, to accomplish those things. And then somehow, you know, I still may, you know, you may still have a drink within those times, but at least, you know, you're doing those positive things. And um, it can, can do a lot for even just self-esteem. And I find that 
when I was really depressed and not able to do the things I knew that were good for me, that um, shame and guilt came up. So when I was able to do one thing that was good, it, it, it really did sort of give me uh, a boost and a bit of distance from sort of the negativity that I was feeling. Thank you for that one. Um, we've got a couple of questions coming in about from people who are supporting someone in their life with bipolar disorder. Um, so we have one person uh, asking about marijuana specifically, um, that the person that they support uh, is, is a chronic user of marijuana, which is making it a bit difficult for his psychiatrist to correctly medicate his bipolar disorder. Half the time he doesn't know if he is treating the side effects of marijuana use or the mental illness itself. And I think this links uh, into another question that we have, which is any tips for how to communicate with a family member about their substance use? So, I mean, I think um, as we were talking about, like, I guess marijuana use is not uncommon um, in general and in bipolar. And I think um, some people who li live with bipolar do describe feeling that they that they feel it helps, but actually, in terms of the research, I think I think there's a there's a blog on this at the end of the talk. Actually, uh, mm -hmm. the the research in general seems to be that actually um, longer term cannabis use isn't that helpful for people with bipolar in general in terms of. Uh, greater risks of higher levels of anxiety, possibly higher risks of psychosis and that sort of thing. So it's certainly uh, an important thing to consider as a, as a challenge. And I think um, obviously it's really helpful if, um, if, if clinicians can engage with this in a constructive way. So I know some people feel that um, they, they almost resist talking about that sort of thing with, with their, say, psychiatrist, if they've got a psychiatrist who has very fixed views. But actually being able to have a, a sensible conversation with, for instance, a clinician about well, why, why are you using it? What are you hoping to get from it? Is that actually what's working? Other things we can sort of brainstorm that might be a bit more constructive, more helpful, the sorts of things that uh, Victoria was describing earlier can all be sort of part of trying to make a change with that. And I think in relation to the other question, a lot of the evidence in terms of what works with substance use issues in terms of therapy is also relevant in terms of sort of how, how we engage people generally. Um, so that um, general motivational interviewing approaches and that sort of thing is, is about sort of meeting the person where they're at as far as you can. So if somebody is just locked into substance use, just sort of trying to, you know, explain to them why it's not a bad idea or why it is a bad idea and how they would benefit from not doing it can fall on really stony ground often. Mm -hmm. But trying to get to what actually the person does value and what they actually want to do with their lives and trying to see ways and opportunities where that could be facilitated can can actually begin to open doors to having that difficult conversation about one of the things that might be getting in the way which could be that substance use issue so sometimes what may feel like a rather indirect approach can actually potentially be more fruitful I think that, that those are my initial thoughts. 
Yeah. And I, I really, I feel like it's also really important for the family member to um, get support for themselves um, around that and some clarity of, um, because it, it's, you can't control someone else's behavior as much as you may feel like you know what's best or what you see is detrimental. And so I feel like uh, finding ways so that you can uh, make sure your needs are met and that you have an understanding of how you can talk to somebody about that. And then if those can't be met in that situation, what are, um, what are your alternatives? What are the options that you have to take care of yourself? Um, what are the boundaries that you need to make? And it may not have anything to do with that person changing their behavior. It may be about you finding ways. And this may not be something that you want to hear. <laughs> you may want to find, you know, you may want to just know saying, okay, well, if I just do this, you know, A plus B will equal C. Um, I, and I think it goes a long way because I think, you know, as soon as you sort of push someone in a direction that they may not be interested in, it's just going to create more tension. And the biggest thing that I think actually helps is when there's a really loving rapport and an understanding and as much compassion as possible. And that I think is probably one of the biggest um, challenges and stumbling blocks. Um, uh, so th that's one of the, the, the things too. If the person's living with you and at, is your adult child or something, uh, to some degree, I think you do have more leverage because you can make sort of uh, boundaries around, you know, if they're living under your roof, you have certain needs and these, these are the things that you need and you want. And if not, then you can find alternatives um, and support that person and just uh, um, encourage the person to know that you're there no matter what. Uh, whether they want to sort of abide by what you're asking, or if not, to find other solutions that may not mean living it uh, within and under your roof. Thank you. Um, I think I might make these the last questions so we have enough time to go through our resources and tips at the end. Um, and again, there are two questions which are kind of uh, closely linked about how, how to manage uh, triggers to use substances, particularly social cues, uh, with the changing routine at this time. Uh, so one person says that online happy hour is a really big part of how my social network is connecting right now. Um, and I'm drinking way more than I used to, but I don't want to miss out on whatever social connection I can get during this time. Uh, and another person brings up that uh, living at home now with their family um, who uh, is aware of their substance use difficulties, but they still like to drink around me sometimes. Um, but I can't expect them to stop com drinking completely at home. Um, how can I be reasonable in approaching them? So how can people manage these social cues to um, use substances at this time? Thanks, Emma. So those two, as you say, sort of related, but uh, in ch interesting challenges in sort of slightly different ways, I guess. So the, the first, person was talking about um, the sort of social media, the, the, the social media engaged, meeting with friends on social yeah. media and those friends drinking and feeling sort of impelled to sort of drink with them. Mm -hmm. Online happy hours, you see a lot yeah. of that. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So 
So I think, I mean, again, I think it's really important that they're actually identifying that this is a challenge now rather than sort of just going along with it. That's, that's a really important first step. I mean, I suppose it's worth also thinking about how, how many of these are they engaging in? You know, you can, it's very easy to feel that if you don't go to all the social events, people, you know, people will somehow forget you or that you'll, you know, drop off the list for the invite or whatever. But in my experience, people are generally a bit more tolerant than that. So, so actually, if some of the social engagement is, is non-happy hour related, you know, with other groups of friends, you know, you, it, maybe it could gradually get a bit easier to balance those two things. Mm -hmm. I think also, uh, you know, people who are meeting you remotely aren't necessarily going to know how much you're drinking a cocktail and how much you're drinking <laughs> something else. So, uh, you know, just a bit of interspersing to actually sort of manage your rate of consumption is also helpful. And I think the general uh, suggestions that we've been making through the other questions are actually probably highly relevant to that. So, so if if you have kind of nothing in the day and then the happy hour is the thing, then that's a very different situation from actively putting things into your day that are also positive and helpful. So that that's you know that may still be a nice thing, but you're not hanging on to that as your one solution um, to to the. Uh, you know, to having a decent day. I, I, I realise there's another part to that question, but I wonder if there's anything you want to add, Victoria, now? Uh, no, it probably is for both. I mean, and this is maybe a really um, trite um, suggestion or solution, but it's something that I've had to use because right now I'm choosing not to drink and people are, you know, we're people want to have, you know, quarantinis and, you know, or, you know, around a, a fire or something or whatever. So I've just really, one of my uh, pursuits and also is finding the best non-alcoholic drink possible. So I've had suggestions of um, shrubs. I've, I've tried all the different flavored bubbly drinks and, you know, whether it's tonic, you know, or just tonic that has you know, all that stuff. So, you know, making it sort of appealing so that even if I, it, it's, it's different enough than just water or juice. And, and so, you know, I don't know if this is, you know, part of it, I think is feeling included in the social aspect of it. Um, and that's sort of a separate thing, but the, the literal physical kind of stuff. Cause I, I, I like, I like the taste of some of the alcoholic beverages that I was having. So um, finding something that's um, uh, at least somewhat enjoyable and as uh where i don't feel like i'm missing out on on at least that level um has helped me actually perhaps we should get um victoria's shrub recipes to share yeah. on the social media later direction <laughs> yet so I'm, at the moment i'm sort of finding juice cocktails with juice and bubbly water and tonic and all this kind of stuff and a dash of lime and ginger or something like that so yeah. <laughs> That sounds very good. <laughs> yeah, and it's refreshing too. And uh, yeah, and I think the other question was about um, if you um, live with a family member who's drinking, yeah, yeah. that's influencing your behavior. Yeah, and I I think what you were saying, Stephen, is really building in those other positive experiences within the day. Um, and I think it's really um, generous and also really um, you know 
take credit for the fact that you recognize that you it's you can't expect people around you not to drink um, necessarily or that you're you're not trying to change that you're looking at how you what's in your control which i think is really really important um and uh, i think it depends on like when when they're drinking if if it makes it possible for you to sort of take a breather from the actual place uh, and be walking around, but in times of quarantine, that may not be possible. Um, and what do you have any thoughts about sort of uh, monitoring those triggers when you're actually sort of within sort of a family that's drinking and you're sort of um, more vulnerable to I might just ask if we can keep it a uh, one minute answer so we can move on to resources. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I echo Victoria's comments and I, I think that I think. Um, you know, having some sort of journal or diary or simple record of, of what patterns you're noticing in that environment can be really helpful so that you can, you know, think how you might adjust, you know, can you withdraw under certain circumstances as, as Victoria was suggesting? And also, um, you know, what sort of conversations constructively can you have with the family because it is your family about how they can support you in this? You're not asking them to stop drinking, but Maybe there are other things that they could do that, that could help you in terms of the other aspects of the day. So I think, you know, thinking creatively as, as, as best you can around those issues might be helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much to both of our speakers. Um, I'm so grateful for you sharing all of your responses to these questions and your expertise on this topic. Um, I might quickly move through our additional resources, a couple that we mentioned earlier. Uh, so there is a blog about bipolar disorder and cannabis on the Crest BD website. Um, this is a kind of emerging area of research as we flagged. Um, so if you're interested, there were a couple of questions that came up about that. Um, please do pop over to our website to um, read our update on that. And uh, Laura has dropped the link in the chat. Uh, we also have a couple of country specific resources for our Canadian guests. Uh, the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction uh, is sharing some resources and I think this is a really important normalising statistic to look at that it's not just people with bipolar disorder who are struggling with um, increased substance use in this time. It, this is something that uh, many people are finding really challenging. Um, so if you're in Canada, uh, the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction is a good one to check out for resources. Uh, and then we have some UK specific ones coming up with MIND, uh, various helplines uh, and resources hosted there. Uh, and we also flagged that virtual recovery and virtual peer support groups are a really good way to find support in this time. Uh, and obviously that's really good, you know, for international uh, listeners. Um, so, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services uh, website has all of these online recovery resources. Um, so if you haven't found a group and you've become interested in that after this talk, um, please have a look on there and see whether you can find something local to you. Uh, the Crest Speedy Bipolar Wellness Centre also has some resources about substance use. Uh, bear with us if it's down when you go to check it out. We've been having a bit of um, technical difficulties with that, um, but we do host a lot of tools and the quality of life tool is still up. 
this is a way for you to get kind of quickly take the temperature of how things are going for you, both with your mood and your symptoms, but also broader quality of life areas and your well-being. Uh, our academic website tells you about all of the research and news, the things that we're up to in that space, uh, including our Bipolar Bridges app, which is under development. So if you're interested in contributing to that, we have an online survey up at the moment uh, to ask about how you use apps or if you're a healthcare provider, uh, what kind of apps you might discuss with clients who have bipolar disorder. Whether you use this kind of technology or not, we're really interested in hearing from you. You can see previous talk BDs and today's session after the event uh, at our website. And the next one that we'll be hosting is with one of the founding members of Crest, uh, Professor Greg Murray, who'll be talking about sleep and bipolar disorder, which is going to be uh, May. I think it's 13th. May, yeah, May 13th and May 12th, I think, um, uh, in the Canada and US and UK. Thank you. And we'll have all of the local times up on the top BU website. And I'll just pass over to Stephen to talk through some spectrum links. Yeah, so um, we just wanted to flag there are some resources on the uh, Spectrum Centre website. You can access news about Spectrum on Facebook and Twitter as well. So some specific resources. We uh, have um, a toolkit, an online toolkit for relatives of people um, with psychosis or bipolar. Um, that's freely available um, on on the link that's uh, being provided. So have a look at that and see see what you think. Um, we've also got resources, um, again, free e-resources around uh, personal recovery in bipolar. So um, have a look at that. That includes uh, a workbook, but also uh, videos and animations around people's experiences of that. So those are some things that people might find useful. Uh, we'd like to give a big thank you to our funders and partners who have contributed to this event, uh, as well as all the research behind the scenes. We're very appreciative of their contributions. Uh, and if you'd like to stay up to date with Crest, uh, these are all our social media links. Um, we're also interested in your feedback about this event. So we do have a survey which you can find on the Top BD website. And we'll also post the links on the Facebook video. Um, where you can give us feedback about what topics you'd like to see us cover in future. So I want to offer once again a really big thank you to uh, Victoria and Stephen and to everyone who's attended today. Thank you so much. Um, until next time, please stay healthy and well. Yeah, stay safe, stay well. Stay well. Thank you. Thanks for joining.